So I continue my commentary, more or less commentary, on the book, The Art of Arts, Educating the Child, by Joseph Dewar. I haven't mentioned his name in a while, but he is the principal source that I'm using for these conferences. Basically, M, experience, common sense, and Calvin Howes, of course. <laughs> An educator, be it a parent or be it a teacher, is like a gardener. When a child is born, he's like a little seedling. And that seedling is entrusted to the care of mom, dad, eventually teacher, priest. The ground that seedling is, is planted in, the climate that it's subject to, the robustness of the seedling itself, they are what they are. They cannot be changed. But it's the role of the gardener, that's us, to help that seedling to grow, to help it to become strong, to help it to bear fruit. Education. If it's meant, in education I say broadly, it's not school, it's formation. Day one, the time your child is out of line. If it's about helping the child to grow and to become strong and bear fruit, it cannot be just a code of rules. Do this and don't do that. Which is backed by threats. Promise of sanctions, punishment. Because we're so pressed for time, because we have so much on our plates, the tendency is to reduce education to that. We strive very hard not to, but it, it can come down to that. And, and sometimes you'll see parents that I mean, it's clear that that's what they think they're supposed to do. It's a continuous, if you listen to them or watch them with their kids, it's a continuous stream of don't do that, don't lie, don't cheat, don't, don't argue, don't bite your nails, be quiet, sit still, behave yourself, go blow your nose. Right? Just And then you hear, I better not need to come in there. When your father comes home, you're going to wish... consequence of such an approach is disaster. Obviously, that's part of being an educator. Setting rules, setting limits, and enforcing them. Don't get me wrong, it's definitely part. But if that's all there would be there, then it's a disaster. A strong temperament, either because he loves the fight, or because he's He's rebellious, will simply engage in an unending battle with his, with his parent or teacher or whoever. It'll be a battle that never stops. The weaker temperament will submit, perhaps, but he will never, there will never be a transformation. There will never be a conversion, a turnaround, that's what the word means. 
Father Duar says this, such an education, rather than forming the child, in fact deforms him and may even pervert him. And he uses a story that goes back all the way to the 12th century. A monk went to St. Anselm, he was an educator. The monks educated. Right, you have a little boy, right? He gets five years old. Oh, off to the monastery you go. We'll see you when you're 15. I caricaturize a little bit. But the monks were the educators. And he went to St. Anselm. He wasn't a saint at that point. And he was so frustrated. And he said, Father Anselm, or whatever you call him, I've just, I've had enough to hear with these kids. I'm on top of them all the time. I make sure they know exactly what they're supposed to do. And when they don't do it, I'm on them just like that all the time. And it's, it's a waste of time. There's absolutely no improvement. <laughs> and St. some said to him, What do you expect? If a gardener, he said, in the garden puts a basket over the little seedling fruit tree and forces it down into, let's say, a vase of the tree is this high, and he takes a basket this high, and he forces it down on top of it. And then he leaves it there for two years, and then he goes back, what's he going to find? Or he leaves it there for ten years, what's he going to find? If the branches aren't allowed to go out, He's going to find a tenure less. And then he went on and explained that the resentment in the soul would be reflected by that tenure less. And because of the resentment, there will be a refusal of correction. St. Francis de Sales, this is in the 17th century, he says pretty much the same thing. Such a case. He says, even if by the strength of your authority, you succeed in getting the children to observe your every rule, you will not have progressed towards your goal. Everything has been turned into irksome formality and perhaps into hypocrisy. You will have made distasteful to them the very good that you seek to inspire them to love. True education means not to smother personality, but to help it to blossom. Not to lessen a child's activity, but to direct it. Not to paralyze the child's energy, to make it so he doesn't have it. Oh, stop! Stun gun. Not to paralyze the child's energy, but to discipline it. Not to arrest his flight, but to orient it toward the good, the beautiful, and the true. And so that means that a true educator could fall into two extremes. The one extreme to the right would be the tyrant. He's ready to jump on the least little thing. The error to the left is passive. He doesn't jump on anything. He just lets it happen. There's no direction. There's no rule. There's no correction. Whereas the true educator, in fact, Father Dewar says, is one 
who, by his efforts, succeeds in tapping into the enormous resource of energy, idealism, and generosity that's being born from the young. That's the true education. That all sounds very beautiful or scary. How in the world do we do it? Father Dor says, firstly, you want to develop the tendencies that are in your child. You want to take into account the tendencies that are natural to him. The good ones you want to help to grow, to develop. The not so good ones you want to help him overcome. There is in all of us an inclination to act and respond in certain ways. It's rooted in our natural temperament, which has good and bad traits. We talked a little bit about that before. I've never done the conferences because it would take me three or four to do it well. And a lot of you already know the temperaments very well. I just kind of feel like it. my time could be used better elsewhere for, for these conferences. If you don't think that's the case, tell me. I love the study of the temperaments. I just think that we don't need to go into depth because so many of you know them. But just as kind of a review to see the positive and negative and how they fit actually together. The melancholic temperament, right? These, these are normally your artists, your musicians, your teachers, your nurses. They tend to be more reserved, quiet, kind-hearted, thoughtful, conscientious. They also tend to be very sensitive tend to be pessimistic, and therefore they tend to be prone to moodiness, to fight that. And the two go together. It's flip sides of the coin. The positive carries with it the negative. You can't have the positive without the negative. It's bound to be there. The choleric temperament, these are your builders, your entrepreneurs. When I was preparing this class, by the way, I was putting down names of people that I <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want to know who the melancholics are? <laughs> <laughs> then I decided maybe I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Actually, it should never offend anybody because each temperament has the positives and negatives. The cholerics tend to be the builders, the entrepreneurs, right? They're energetic, they're active, they're very confident, they're very determined. They're leaders at the same time, because they're so competent, or think they are, and they're so confident, I can say that because I'm accused of being a caller. They tend to be unsympathetic and impatient with imperfection. They tend to be aggressive. If you're my way, move or you're getting run over because I'm going through. Then there's the same when these are your actors, your salesmen, public speakers. They're very enthusiastic and vivacious and outgoing, warm and friendly, and very comfortable in the limelight. They would love all the cameras that I hate. But on the other hand, they tend to be rather emotional. Disciplined, disorganized, 
and loud. The phlegmatic temperament, these are your, your craftsmen, often your managers, because they're, they're, they don't get flustered. Your engineers, your diplomats, they're easy paced, they're easy going. They just don't get rough. On the other hand, they tend not to move very fast. They tend to put off things that need to be done. They tend to be reluctant to get involved. And they tend not to communicate that well. For $10, I'll give you the list after. Why is this important to the educator? Well, it's clear that from the earliest age, what you want to do is you want to see the good tendencies, cultivate, cultivate them, and see the bad tendencies and correct them, as we said. And you don't want to give the bad tendencies food or exercise. Don't give them practice. You want to nip them in the bud. Especially, it's very important, before the child gets to the point where he has to fight real battles. When he's a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old, the battles are small, the battles are simple. But when he's a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, they're no longer small. And the, the weaknesses that are inherited in his temperament, if he hasn't made progress in overcoming them, it's kind of like the foundation stone of a building that's a little bit crooked, and it's not so bad on that level. But go up one floor, now it's a little more crooked. Go up another floor, it's a little more crooked. Go up another floor, it's a little more crooked. Go up another floor, and the building goes down. For a sanguine, for example, a sanguine loves attention. They love the camera. They love people to pay attention to them. When they're a little child, that's cute. When they're a 17-year-old girl, that's dangerous. The melancholic tends to moodiness, as we said. When they're five years old, it's basically just little rain clouds. When they're 15 years old, it's the deluge. So you want to work very hard, you, we, all of us, to, to overcome or to get those bad tendencies in hand before it gets time for the battlefield. For the real battle. On the other hand, you want to give those the good tendencies that are there a healthy start. You want those to be the ruling ones by the time of adolescence. Adolescence. That's your goal. And cultivating those good tendencies is especially important. As, as one educator writes, to educate is not so much to combat nature as to use and exploit the healthy powers, tendencies, against the unhealthy. The bad tendencies will be overcome, in fact, to a large extent, by the development of the good ones. For example, a choleric. He wants to be in charge. He wants to lead, and he's idealistic. He wants to be a good leader. Well, that entails of necessity him combating his tendency to lack sympathy and to be impatient. He'll never be a good leader if he lacks sympathy and if he's impatient with everyone on there. 
And so you use his desire to be a leader to help him overcome the weak tendencies. The melancholic, very tender-hearted and sympathetic for those around him and for our Lord. He will tend to be very sympathetic for our Lord and his suffering for souls. And that can help him, if you cultivate that, that can help him rise above his tendency to be focused on his self and his own weakness, his own misery, and his own problems. The sanguine has a desire to please. He wants everybody to like him. He wants everybody to think he's great. He wants to make everybody happy, like he's happy. You can use that as motivation to help him overcome this or that fault that he has simply to please you because he wants to please you. For no other reason. We please our Lord and please you. Use the tendency. You can see if you understand what I'm saying here, how important it is to know the temperaments that helps to know your kids. To know your kids. To know what makes them tick. To know what's going on inside. To understand where they're coming from. It takes time. It takes attention. It takes patience. There are certain tendencies, just to illustrate more the what I'm trying to show here, there are certain tendencies that are pretty much common to youth in general. And those especially you can use. Combativeness is one of them. You see it. The constant little disputes and little arguments and little things on the playground. And little, it's pretty much there in, in most kids to a certain extent. You can use that. You can use it. You want your kid to be a fighter. You do. But not a fighter for his selfish reasons. A fighter for what matters. A, fight, a fighter for the good. And so all you need to do is take that fighting instinct and steer it. Steer it to the real battlefield. Steer it to the battlefield of his own soul. Steer it to the battlefield for souls. Look at how many vocations are born simply because... Someone takes seriously the battle for souls. And they, and they know what's at stake, and, and they, I gotta do something. I gotta do, I gotta do what I can do. And the best fighters on the playground, if you can turn that selfishness, which is what it is on the playground most of the time, it can be sometimes a sense of justice, and they're responding to that, and so you would go easy on that. That doesn't mean you were correct. We would address more, though, the how to combat the injustice than you would to come down on because he's combating it. Good that he's combating it. But the, the one who's a fighter on the playground, who's a fighter in his soul, uh, he's a fighter in his, his, his very nature, he is the, the most potential to be the greatest soldier of Christ. Reminds me of uh, the movie The Fighting Sullivans. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Right? The five brothers joined the Navy, I guess it was. Right? I can't remember whether it was the youngest one. He was making his first confession. 
right? And so they're in the church. I think he had just made his first confession. The sister's there, and you hear a thing. And all of a sudden, there's a whistle from one of his playmates or his brothers outside. They were in a brawl with the other people. Right? So all are out there fighting. And he jumps up out of the pew, genuflects very respectfully, and tears out of the church and dives into the pile. <laughs> That's a boy. That's a boy. His brothers need him. He's going to be there for him. <laughs> He's a fighter. And of course, they went in and they joined the Navy and all fought together and died together as well. But you see it too, the Crusaders. Soldiers who fight for their country, the selflessness that a good soldier has. And how many saints, how many heroes of our faith, they were fighters. And so when you have a boy, especially a boy, who has that instinct in him, don't put the basket over it and go... Right? Get those branches in. Use it. Use it. It showed you the same thing. I mean, there are, obviously there are many other tendencies. There's curiosity, there's love of games, there's a sense of justice, there's a desire to please, there's uh, energy. Right? You can use all of those things. All of those things you use. Right? And I gave an example of it. I did that without actually even consciously doing it, when I gave the conference on purity. And I said that we have to use the natural attraction of the young for beauty to help them be pure by showing them the beauty of purity. You have to use their natural pride by appealing to it. You don't, they don't want to grab it. You have to use their natural mobility of, of spirit, that sense of chivalry, you use it to help them have respect for the opposite sex, especially boys. You use their love and their respect for you by taking advantage of their, their desire not to disappoint you. You use those, those positive traits that are there to achieve your end as an educator for their good. There is in every child Every child, there are good traits. It's a question of finding them and finding the one that can be the key to help them to grow. Our goal in, in cultivating these tendencies is going to be to form habits, to form good habits. A habit is simply a tendency that through practice, through repetition, has acquired a lasting or stable character. It becomes a lasting or stable trait of one's character. It's like the road, you know, you have the dirt road, and you have the wagon that goes over the same path again and again and again, and the ruts develop. And pretty soon, the driver of the wagon doesn't even need to hold the reins of the horse. The horse has the habit of following that road, and the road has ruts in it. Well, the wagon's in the ruts, and it swallows. Habits are tremendously, uh, first of all, I mean, obviously, all kinds of habits. They're physical habits, the way of walking, right? the way of talking. I went to the convent, I was given a conference, and one of the sisters, or a couple of the sisters, said to my sister afterwards, all I could hear is you the whole time. It sounded just like you. I said, thank you. 
<laughs> the habits which come from a fear. There are, there are also mental habits, a habit of optimism, a habit of pessimism. There are habits of mind, right? a habit of being attentive, of being able to concentrate, a habit of industry, of intellectual work. There are habits of will, right? where I'm, I'm, I'm used to making firm decisions, or I'm not used to making decisions at all. I run these are habits. Obviously, habits can be good, bad, or indifferent. And everything in between, all the way across the board. But they're tremendously important because in everyday life, habits make even difficult things easy. We have a couple of very good piano players in here. They'll sit down at the piano and they're not thinking about it. They're, they might not even be concentrating at all on the piano. And they're playing beautiful music. That, that action which for someone who's not in practice would be impossible, for the person who has the habit of it, it's nothing. Habits also save, and it fits the same one, they save thought and attention. They don't take so much energy. Most of you, I hope, when you're driving, I do say most of you, when you're driving, you're really not putting too much thought into, you know, all right, let up on the gas, move the foot over to the brake, look in the rear view mirror, look both ways, and you just do it, right? You just do it. It's a habit. It's developed into a habit, and so something which is a skill has become for you second nature. Habits also give accuracy. We took the kids to the rodeo last year at the camp, and we were very much hoping that a particular uh, performer would be there. He's there every year and wasn't there this year. Uh, he, he performs with a bullwhip, he and his wife, and it's incredible. He pretends to be angry at his wife, and he has a whip. And she pulls out a gun on him, and he shoots it off with his whip. He goes, and hits the trigger. She's holding it like this. And he goes, and he goes, whoa. Then they make up. She's riding a horse. He's standing on two horses with his bullwhip. He rides by her. She has a flower in her mouth. And he knocks off the flower. Incredible. Incredible. The skill, the accuracy that's born of habit, practicing again and again and again and again at the same time. Likewise, habits make particular actions desirable. We get used to doing them, and we want to do them. A jogger who gets up at 5 o'clock every morning in zero-degree weather, puts on his suit, and heads out and runs, and he comes back in and he goes, Oh, that was great. That was great. And the day that it's 30 below and he can't go out, he regrets it. That action which, for me, would be 
just this far from hell. <laughs> For him, it's a pleasure. He's in the habit of doing it. And so you see what happens there. Because the action has become desirable, the action is done easily again and again. And the habit is further strengthened. Now in the spiritual life, we're jumping up now, in the spiritual life, you can see where these things are important. Even in everyday life, they're important. What about the spiritual life? What is virtue? It's a good habit. It's a good moral habit. I talked in the sermon this morning about temperance. It's a habit. Charity is a habit. Purity is a habit. Vice, on the other hand, is a bad habit. It's a bad moral habit. Someone with a gutter mind doesn't have to make the decision to go into the gutter. He's always there. The impurity has become a habit. Someone who uses our Lord's name in vain doesn't, doesn't consciously think of it anymore. It's now a habit. We are, all of us, creatures of habit. And that's, I mean, obviously we can go against our habits. We can act otherwise. But we won't act otherwise without a conscious effort. It's got to be a conscious decision. So concretely speaking, the nobility of our character, the nobility of the character of your kids, is determined to a huge extent by the nobility of their habits. Habits that came from you and us. When a child is born, he has no habits. He has tendencies. He has a temperament. So the temperament is there, the tendencies are there, but there are no habits because there's been no repetition of act. Certainly at times, you can be a child who has certain physiological difficulties or psychological difficulties, and so it can be very difficult to form him. But aside those exceptional cases, the average child is made of a clay which is very formable. You can press it and form it any way you want. And that's what you do by the life that you lead with him and the life that you let him develop. So it's very important from the very first to work to develop good habits in your kids. You want your child to have the virtue of piety. That's a habit that on a natural level you can be instilling in him when he's two years old. Every morning and every night you say your prayers with him. And you say them reverently and you help him say them reverently at his level. Every day in the family you say, you say grace before every day. You say the angels at the same time. You say the rosary in the evening. Pretty much around the same time. You will develop, those things will become second nature to your child. That doesn't mean that he won't reach a point where he's going to decide whether he wants to do that or not. But the point is, he will already be in the habit of doing it. It's no big deal to him. 
Same thing with manners. <clears throat> the manners of a child come from the formation of home, for the most part. How he greets someone. I was, um, went to, back to my old circuit over Christmas, and one of the little ones came up to me and shook my hand. I was just three years old. Hello, Father Beck. Look right in my eye. And then he turned back and he went, Was that good, Mommy? And I said, That was perfect. You looked him right in the eye. It's already happened there. It's already happened there. When you, you train them to greet people, you, the way they're to act at table. There's been a little frustration at times with, with the habits at table here during the lunch hour. But it's difficult to do a whole lot when probably the things are pretty loose at home, at least in some cases. Conversation with adults. The respect that's shown. These are manners that they're just habits. They're habits that you instill in him from a very young age. Regularity. If every morning you get your child up at the same time, and every evening goes to bed at the same time, um, and you have your meals more or less within a certain structure, and the duties are done right at their time, dishes get done right after the meal, and that's just the way it goes, you will instill in your children regularity. They will have the habit. It becomes a way of life. It becomes just the way you do it. And there's this, on a very, that's a natural level now, but there's a stability there that will be a huge help later on. Of course, you have to remember always in practice, the growth comes from within. It cannot be forced. So when you want to form in your child a particular habit, obedience, effort, good effort, right? you've got to place yourself in the child's perspective to do it well. You have to seek the key to him wanting that virtue. And that's, I know there's certain debate about some of the things that go on at La Salette, for example, and some things obviously get corrected and need to be. Right? But, but the one thing they do very well at that school is they get the boys to buy into what is being given at. So that the boys want it, generally speaking. They want the discipline. They want the difficulty of studies. They want the challenge. And once you've got them wanting now they're on their own. They're, they're role. You're there to guide, to help, to encourage. Oh, look, back up, back, back, back. They're wrong. How do you do it? Well, first, when it comes to forming the habits of your children, be convinced of them yourself, how important it is. You will never form your child in regularity if you don't think regularity is anything no big deal. It's not a big deal. You've got, to, you've got to know what you're trying to achieve, and you've got to know why you're trying to achieve it, and you've got to believe in it yourself. That belief, yourself, goes a long ways to helping the child accept it for his own. I remember one time, very early in my seminary, Dr. Well, 
And that was, it was early in the summer. Dr. Ronowski, who's a professor now out in, in Post Falls, he came and he gave a conference on some philosophical subject. Well, philosophy for me getting a headache. It still does, really. Right? I mean, it's abstract thinking. It's, you know, and he came in to give this conference. I'm like, oh, okay. philosophy. Let's go. Right? And he comes in. That man is so pumped up about what he's teaching. He's going up and down the aisles, and he's going like this, and, and that's what's going on here, and you're over there, and <laughs> truth is important. And, I mean, and you're sitting there, wow. <laughs> and after a while, you go, you know what? This is important. You know, that is cool. That, that is neat, actually. It's his enthusiasm. You can't resist it. Dr. White is another one. Right, when Dr. White talks about Shakespeare, King Lear, right, and he goes, oh, oh man, i got to share this with you. This, this day. Is my absolute favorite. His enthusiasm, he believes in it. He's someone you look up to, and he believes in it. And that means, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. And so it is with, with us. When we try to form the kids, right, in, to form habits in the kids, that maybe of their own accord, with their own immaturity, they wouldn't, well, what does that matter? Right? But if it's something which you're enthused about it, and you show it by the way you live your life, and you show it by how you present it to him, and the encouragement that you give him, like the little boy who came up to me in Pittsburgh. Right? He was so proud of himself that he knew how to greet a priest that he had never met before, frankly. He was so proud of him. Because mom and dad said, you're a little man. When you grow up, you greet father. You greet him as a little man. You look him in the eye and you give him a firm handshake. And you say, good morning, Father. You don't put your head down and, right? No. Right? And so that enthusiasm, there he was. Right? It's a little thing, but little things are what makes strong characters. You have to be convinced yourself. You have to have a battle plan. Helping your child to develop a taste for a particular virtue is easy when that particular virtue more or less fits his natural tendencies. The melancholic tends to be pious. The choleric tends to want to be. And if what you're asking of them is that they do those things, it's not so difficult. But what about when it's the other way around? What about when it's a virtue that, that doesn't come naturally to them at all? Now it takes work. It takes thought. It takes discussion between you and your and your spouse. How can we do this? How can we approach them? So we do on our, our afternoons with, with, with the teachers meetings. We discuss how can we do a better job? What do we have to adjust? What can we do to reach that one or, or that group? What can we do? We discuss it. It takes creativity it takes work. Certainly, the creativity comes into play because the only way you're going to form the habit is by repetition of act. And you're never going to get them to do the same action over and over again unless somehow there's a certain satisfaction in it for him. And that doesn't mean pleasure in the sense of candy reward. It means a certain satisfaction. I remember when we were kids growing up, we were always encouraged during Lent to give up sweets. And then, okay, Lent's approaching. And then one of us, and I don't even remember who it was, came up with a bright idea. 
that any candy that we were given in Lent, we were going to pull it. And we were, on Easter, going to give an Easter basket to Mom and Dad. And from then on, giving up candy for Lent not only became a sacrifice that we were willing to do, it was something we looked forward to every year. And the project grew and grew and grew. We had to try different things. We would get the candy out, like every week we'd get it out and count. Okay, we got six big pieces and three little ones, right? And we would make little art things to go in the basket. The sacrifice now was easy, desirable, and still unselfish. The action must provide certain satisfaction, and that takes thought and creativity and work. And we have to be careful that the action we're asking of them is not for them distasteful and irksome. Sometimes a parent or a teacher will make the mistake of using something which is very critical, like studies or prayer, as a punishment. It's not a good idea, because you want them to see prayer, for example, in a positive light. There's a difference in the confession. That's not punishment, what you get in the confession. That's an opportunity to show our gratitude for forgiveness and to make it up to him. It's not punishment. And the proof is that if you get a penance in the confessional that it's too much, you say so. I can't do that. Okay, well, let's change it to this. So you have to be careful. You don't want something which is very important that they, that they do regularly to become for them a punishment in their mind. Another way that the actions can become irksome is if you, if you overtax the limitations. Right? For example, you want your children to learn regularity and piety, so you say the rosary every night. Your child's three years old. Yell up. After 36 seconds, you slouch, kneel up. After 26 seconds, you slouch, kneel up. After 15 seconds, he's slouching, grab him by the ear and pull him up and hold him there for the rest of the rosary. Right? No, I mean, he's not capable at three. And I, obviously, you wouldn't do it, right? I mean, it's a caricature, but I'm illustrating the point. What would happen is you have a parent who's taking something which is good, but which is beyond the child's capability, but demanding it of him. I knew a parent once who required the kids to say 15 decades of the rosary. It's too much. Too much. They will hate the rosary. Not love it. So you need a battle plan? You can't procrastinate. The earlier, the better. For any habit. It only gets more difficult as that clay begins to harden. And with every passing year, the clay is a little bit more difficult to form. That's why the Dominican sisters will rarely take a child after the seventh grade. Because they just said, today, the clay is set. We can't take that and form it. It's already formed. That doesn't mean the child's best, you know, whether you're going to have it or how it's determined, but they just, the formation is basically complete. 
There's no way we can take the child at that point. And so the earlier the better. Consistency is very important as well. The more frequently a particular action, like the Dilush, the more frequently it's performed, the easier it is to do it again. I remember when, as, uh, when we first started going to the traditional Mass, an hour and 20 minutes away. Mass was 10 minutes away, and then all of a sudden it was an hour and 20 minutes away. And as teenagers, we were absolutely thrilled. <laughs> Now it's something. Obviously, now I'm a priest, but for those at home who have done it year after year, that's just Sunday. You do it most of yourself. 45 minutes, an hour for Mass. It's just the way it is. You don't even think about it. It's become a habit, a virtuous habit. You make that act of generosity for the Lord, and it's easy. Being consistent, that is important. <clears throat> Sticking to it. The tendency is to make exceptions. And whenever you make exceptions, you lose ground. One author, it's not Joseph Dewar, uh, he says it's like when you're forming a habit, it's like you're winding a ball of yarn. And when you miss one day, you lose more than one rotation of yarn. It's like you dropped the ball. Oh! So exceptions have to be true exceptions for real reasons. The strongest temptation, apparently, and I guess I, mean, I guess we can see it with our own with our own souls. The strongest temptation is to relax when the habit is about half formed. We're starting to make progress. I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling pretty strong. I'm, I'm making progress. And so we relax and we skip. Pretty soon we're not doing spiritual reading anymore. Or we're not going to confession anymore. Or we're not going to communion anymore. The bottom line here is that as parents and teachers and priests, we look for the good that we know with God's grace can be done. God made every soul for sanctity. When He gave you your child, He gave you that child with the intention that He becomes sin. There is good there that can be developed in every single one of them. The spirit of an educator is the spirit of our Lord. And the spirit of our Lord is the spirit of hope. Because He knows. But in the end, you will be that song. It will take time, it will take work, it may take tears, but in the end, you will have the song. I'll finish with a parable from the Gospels. Remember the householder who went out into his great farm with the gardener. And the gardener is showing them around and saying, see how these are grown and that's doing very well. And they came by this little tree that was all wilted and not doing very well at all. And the householder said, every year when you take me around my property, you see that tree 
and it never changes. Rip it up. Why should it be in the ground? It's just using up space. What's something in it that's going to rot? And the gardener said, no, no, no. Give me another year. I haven't taken care of it. Let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Let me water it. Let me take care of it. And next year when you come around, if it's still the same, then I'll tear it up. But let me, let me work. That's us. We have to be the gardener. The tree might not look very impressive. But we can't just tear it out the ground for the Because our vocation is to make the tree bear fruit. We grow strong, we bear fruit. And the fruit of being with God for each other. What age in a child can you start to discern what temperament they are? When they're born. <laughs> so it's something that's hardwired in them for life, pretty much? Well, temperaments can evolve, for sure. I'm far more choleric now than I ever was. Because I have to be. There are some people so that aspect of my temperament grows from what? Repetition. From practice, from exercise. And so grows. Are some people kind of a mix where they're kind of primarily one, but secondary, secondary? Oh, everybody's a mix. There, in fact, there are different schools with regard to temperaments. The four that I mentioned, that's one classic school. There's another one that uses eight. Right, they get more detailed, right? but everyone's a mix. And no one is, it's, just because you're melancholic doesn't mean that you're, you know, it's a cookie cutter. <coughs> there you are, that's you. No, you'll have, you'll have predominantly melancholic traits. Uh, and it helps when you understand that someone's a sanguine or a choleric or a non-choleric. It helps because you understand the general tendencies. Right? And you understand that those are inborn and it's not necessarily a conscious decision. Part of all. The melancholic was moody. I mean, it's not that that, that person gets up in the morning and says, I'm very moody today. Right? <laughs> he gets up in the morning and he's just moody. That's all. <laughs> he doesn't know why. And for him to rise above it is extremely difficult. And so you understand that. It helps you to do it. But no, it's, everyone's a mix. But certainly, <laughs> prominent traits stand out, and they're a big help. 